Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am your host, Lawrence Holmes. I am glad that you are here to listen to this week's podcast. I am very excited about this week's guest because he's a fantastic storyteller. And you're going to find out why soon about it. Thanks, by the way, to everyone who's kind of spent some time catching up on the episodes that we already had of the podcast. Some really good stuff. Last week's episode with Sarah Spain got a lot of good feedback. And thanks to her and everyone involved with making that happen, whether it's the higher-ups here or the higher-ups over there that uh, allowed it to occur. So I want to thank you, and I want to tell you, look, this is episode 14 of the podcast. There's 13 great interviews that you may have already missed. And the one with Jason is a two-parter. I don't want to get so far in the weeds that people just don't go back and listen to some of the old stuff. So we're what three and a half months in now into the podcast. So make sure you go back, scroll through, see if there's anything that catches your fancy. The interview with, with Ben Bradley, I thought was great and completely different than what I was expecting it to be considering that we've known each other for almost 30 years. It went in a completely different direction than I was expecting. The University of Chicago history one, I still have people in Hyde Park coming up to me about that. I love that episode. The episode with Jason Benetti that kicked off the podcast. If you're interested in play-by-play, I highly recommend that you check it out. There are some snafus on the way, uh, along the way with the technology and me not being as great as at audio as I used to be. But I think that we've gotten a handle on that for the most part, which is great. I've also got some ideas and coming up. Like, I want to do some different stuff with the cast where maybe I'm not hosting a particular week. So I've got some, I've got some offers to people that I think are interesting and could do something interesting with an episode to see if they be down for taking over the podcast for a week. And if you've got a suggestion on who I should either interview or turn the podcast over to for a week, email me. Houseoflpodcast at gmail.com is the way that you can do it. This week's guest is a longtime columnist for the Daily Herald. He also hosts the baseball show on the score in Chicago. Hit and run. He's been doing that for a really long time with multiple hosts. And he's just a fun dude. He is the epitome of the grizzled veteran reporter. And I adore him. So we caught up after hit and run was recorded this past Sunday. And he was nice enough to sit down. And I thought, well, maybe we'll go like 30 minutes. We ended up going over an hour talking about all sorts of stuff. Especially when we we honed in on the Cubs winning the World Series. And I think that you'll enjoy his perspective as someone who was in Cleveland when it happened. But we also talked a lot about writing and what it's like to be a beat reporter and how you can do a better job at being a beat reporter. There's some tremendous advice in here. By the way, Barry would never admit to this, but... He played a role in Greg Maddox's Hall of Fame speech, and that's all I'm going to say, that he played a role in it. 
But we talk about the Hall of Fame, too. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. The great Barry Rosner. Can we talk about you being a beer vendor? Can talk about anything you want to talk about. How in the world did you end up a beer vendor? Well, I started when I was 15 as a vendor. You got to work your way up. So I started with Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola, I think it was. And I worked at all the parks, Wrigley, Comiskey, uh, Chicago Stadium, Soldier Field, sold Coca-Cola or peanuts or popcorn or whatever it was uh, that the various stadiums had. You got And you got to start at the bottom, work your way up. The way I got into it was a friend of mine just happened to know somebody who had done it, found out where you went downtown and went to the union office over on Wells or whatever, wherever it was. And if they, uh, if they liked you, it was kind of a coin flip. If they liked you, they said, all right, we'll give you a union card and you show up on opening day next year and we'll see what happens. And so I got my card and I started vending and it was, uh, it was the greatest summer job you could possibly have. Why? Because you're at the ballpark every day. I mean, I was going to be at the ballpark. I was going to try to be at the ballpark every day anyway in the summer. It's what I did. It's what I always did. I love going to baseball games. So it was an opportunity to make money. It was particularly important during college because that was my – put myself through college doing that. And you were at the ballpark and you're watching the games. I mean, I loved it. Uh, money was uh, was okay it wasn't great. We did, you know, it was all commission. We didn't make tips back then. Today, everybody gets tips, and it's it offends me because we didn't get any. I mean, when you go to a game now and you and you buy four beers and you know whatever it costs, a beer vendor gets a ten dollar tip. I didn't get a. I no joke. Probably didn't average a dollar a day in tips back then. Really? Yeah. Was it just that people were cheap, or it wasn't the norm? It just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Everywhere you go, you tip everybody now, right? Pretty much. I, just, I actually I got picked up pizza last night, and I actually tipped the guy for the takeout because he gave me extra Parmesan cheese and plates. And that's a takeout. That's not even delivery, and you're tipping the guy. I mean, there's it, it's just a thing now. It's what you do, and it's nice. But we didn't get any tips, so I'm bitter. Does that surprise you? No. That I'm, <laughs> no. I'm a little bit. It doesn't surprise me one bit that you're bitter. So so you're watching the games and you're having fun watching the games. There's a great picture of me, by the way. You've seen it. The one where you see me pouring a beer and I'm actually watching the game while I'm pouring the beer. That takes a lot of skill. Well, not really. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I don't think I had a whole lot of skill. I just wanted to watch the game. What year are we talking about when you start? Uh, let's see. My first year was, I think, 77 or 78, and then my last year was 84. My last game, vending, was game two of the NLCS at, at Wrigley Field against the Padres, and I thought that we'd be back the next week for the World Series. I mean, Cubs had a 2 nothing lead. I remember sitting with a friend of mine in the right field bleachers after the game was over, and the place had cleared out. And it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful fall day, maybe the last nice day. So remember, the next week was was really terrible. Had there been a World Series, the weather was not good. And we sat out in the right field bleachers, and the sun was starting to go down, and it was just beautiful. And we talked about what it was going to be like. Can you believe this? We're going to see the World Series at Wrigley Field. Can you believe this? They had a 2 nothing lead on San Diego. It was impossible. There's no, I didn't have any money, but if I did, I'd have bet every penny 
that they were going to get to the World Series at that point. And uh, really unfortunate set of circumstances in San Diego, including Jim Fry, the manager, deciding that he wasn't going to go with Rick Sutcliffe in Game 4 because he wanted Sutcliffe for Game 1 of the World Series. You can't win the series that you aren't playing in. Ain't that the truth? It, I I backed him up. I believed it. I mean, I didn't think there's any way they they'd go five with the Padres. So, what were you feeling once you had realized that the the series was going sideways and it looked like they weren't going to make it back to to Chicago for Game One? How how does it go from that great moment when you're watching the sunset and thinking about it to oh? That's over with. Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, it was the same day, Sunday. That Sunday was the same day Walter Payton broke Jim Jim Brown's rushing record. And I had, uh, I was just out of college, and we used to buy a lot of Bears tickets. It was really actually the beginning of me having Bears season tickets. And so we were at that game. We were at, uh, I watched Walter break the record. I worshipped Walter when I was growing up. It was, it was, Sunday was about Walter. That's what it was about. Greatest football player I've ever seen. And so that part was great. And then we got home, and it was already maybe the second or third inning, and I think the Cubs were leading. I just didn't think it was possible that they could lose that game. And it was uh, it, it was awful. I mean, it was, it was depressing. It was sad. I really didn't give a lot of thought to, oh, my vending career is over. <laughs> but but the re- here's, the funny, here's the funny result of that is we always took our uniforms home if there was going to be another game. And what was the uniform? It was white pants and a blue shirt. And you always took it home because you you washed it, and then you, well, occasionally you washed it. It depends how much you spilled on yourself that day. And it that mattered in the fall because yellow jackets were a big thing in September and October. So if you were dealing with something like beer or, or Coca-Cola, you, you had to wash the stuff or else the bees were going to be all over you. So I brought it home to wash it, um, thinking there was going to be another game. Otherwise, I'd have just thrown it in the bin with all the dirties. And because of that, I think I've told you this story some years later, well, many years later, one night at the Hall of Fame in, uh, well, I think it was 2005. It was late a- after the Sandberg induction. I was at the Hall of Fame, and late one night having drinks with Jeff Idelson, who at the time was not the president of the Hall of Fame, but he was communications director. And we just, uh, it was very late. It was probably 2 or 3 in the morning, sitting out on the, on the back patio at the Otisaga Hotel, which is just a beautiful sight as you overlook the lake behind the hotel where all the Hall of Famers stay. And we were talking about our vending days. He had been a vendor in Boston. And I said, you know, I think I got a box of my stuff somewhere. I got a box of my vending stuff. He said, well, what do you got? I said, I think I got the uniform and my coin changer and my belt, you know, my strap that held up the case and a lot of buttons and hats and things like that. He's like, well, you should send that to us. I said, send what to you? He said, send me the whole box of stuff. I said, I, okay, why? He said, I don't know. They might want it. They might want to, they might want it just to, you know, they collect everything here. They want different kinds of things. So I sent them a whole box of stuff. And a year later, I got about half of it back. And they said, we're considering the rest of it for donation. 
And about a year later, I got a certificate in the mail and said, we've accepted these items for donation. Thank you very much. So I had this nice certificate and I put it somewhere, who knows where, and didn't think about it again until 2010 when I was there. I believe 2010 was the Dawson induction. And now, by now, Idelson was the president of the Hall of Fame. And there's a party on Saturday night for the Hall of Famers at the Hall of Fame. It's a wonderful event, open bar. And we were walking around. I happened to bump into Idelson. I said, hey, whatever happened to the stuff that I sent in? He said, you haven't seen it? I said, no. He's, he said, follow me. And I followed him to another part of the Hall of Fame. And there in a display case is my uniform with my coin changer and my strap and some buttons and some other things and a little plaque at the bottom with a nice little inscription and uh, donated by me at the bottom. Very cool. So in a very small way, I am uh, part of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Your, your name is mentioned in a Hall of Fame display, and it's your stuff that's in there. So when you see this, what's your reaction? I laughed first, <laughs> and uh, uh, it it didn't really sink in right away. I thought, well, that's very cool. That's very funny. It seems out of place to me, considering the uh, the gravity of that night and the situation and the hallowed halls and and the people that were around me. And I noticed, I happened to notice Greg Maddox, who was standing about forty feet away, looking at his display case. And I said, dog, you got to come see this. And so I walked him over, and he just looked at it in typical Maddox fashion, kind of just laughed and started to walk away. I said, no, we're going to take a picture together here in front of my display case, which, by the way, was here before your display case, which was eventually, what, 2014, I think it was? Yes. So I said, I got here before you did. Uh, He was not not impressed. He was not interested. He kind of gave me one of those nods like, oh, okay, and walked away. So no picture? I did get a picture See? with Greg Maddox in front of my Hall of Fame display case. I, I use the words loosely. I mean, it's really not my my display case, but my my Hall of Fame uniform is there. So because the Cubs lost in, in, in San Diego and I never returned that – uh, uniform came home with me accidentally. How crazy is that? Put it in a box and forgot all about it. How did you get to be so tight with Maddox? Well, I, I was with him early in his career in Chicago and lived through the, his difficult times in Chicago and lived through th- that 92 season as things were getting better. But that's the year we became pretty close because he was getting hammered in Chicago. Because Stanton Cook and Larry Himes and a guy named Dennis Homerin, who was the chief negotiator for the Cubs with Scott Boris in those discussions, really hammered Maddox publicly. And they really made it out to be all of his fault. When in reality, they had reneged on a deal in December of 1991 and in 1992 went public by saying, to him at the All-Star Game, well, you've never won a Cy Young Award. You've never won 20 games. You've never dominated the National League. So who do you, you know? Who do you really think you are? 
And their offer to him at the All-Star break, I mean, he's at the All-Star game in San Diego, their offer to him was $500,000 more than it was, what, uh, nine months prior or uh, seven, eight months prior, whatever it was. So he really hadn't upped their offer at all. They really didn't think that much of him. He goes out in the second half, dominates the league, wins the Cy Young Award, wins 20 games. And he went through a lot in that second half. Uh, One of my fondest memories, fond only because I chuckle when I think about it, was I, I had been on the phone with Boris many, many times trying to understand everything that happened in December, everything that happened in San Diego, everything that had occurred over the previous year or two in negotiations. And it was complicated and went over it and over it and over it. And I was going to write this big piece between Cincinnati and I believe Houston. I think we had an off day. They were going to start a series in Houston on a Friday night. And on the off day, I was going to write this big Maddox story. The story. What what really happened and where are they now and what's going to happen? And I, I, there were still some things I was unclear on. So I went to Maddox on a night he was pitching in Cincinnati. And most guys, they won't even look at you on a day they're pitching. Yeah, you're not even allowed to kind of approach guys on days that they're pitching now. You know that. You've been in a locker room enough to know that most guys are really uptight. They're really focused. That You don't even – Danny Jackson wouldn't talk to you, not just the day of, but the day before. You couldn't talk to Danny Jackson. He's a bit of a nutcase. Maddox, being Maddox – I said, look, I, I need you for five minutes. I, I need to clarify a few things here. So we sat down uh, on the floor by his locker in the back of the locker room in Cincinnati. This is, the, this is Riverfront still. And near, near the trainer's room, probably an hour and a half before the game. An hour later, we were still sitting there talking about it. And I think it was Dick Pohl, who was the pitching coach, comes walking up. And he goes, uh, you going to pitch today? <laughs> Max is like, what? He goes, it's like 6.30. Do you, are you, are you going to pitch today? Max is like, oh, okay. And he gets up and he looks down at me. He goes, good thing I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and laughs. And you can look it up on Baseball Reference that night in Cincinnati in July. And he goes out and throws like a six-hit shutout. Something like that. Like it was nothing. You know, it's hot, humid. Cincinnati, the ball travels like crazy. Just, you know, complete game. Six-hit shutout. No big deal. Just in a regular Maddox. Yeah. You know, just go out there and throw Maddox if you have to. Yeah. I, so that year we became particularly close, to answer your question. And I digress, as I always do. Which is why I wanted you on the podcast. And then that winter... He went through a lot again, and he was pounded in Chicago. And if you go back and look at what was written, it was all slanted against Greg Maddox, unless you find the stuff that I wrote. And that was the early days of the score. That was the first year of the score. And he got destroyed on this radio station. And I got destroyed on this radio station, on, on the score. Sorry, I'm, I'm pointing to uh, this station because we're sitting here in this station. Um, but I know this is your podcast, but he, he was hammered on the score in Chicago and he was hammered in the Chicago papers. And I was as well for defending him because the way the story was being told was not fair. And a lot of it was inaccurate and there was no support for him, not among his current teammates, 
not among his past teammates, not among obviously the Cubs organization, which was spinning it in their in a in a direction for for themselves, of course, never admitting any any failure on their part. That was the same winter that they let Andre Dawson walk and they signed the likes of Jose Guzman and Candy Maldonado and Willie Wilson and Dan Plesak. And they really felt like they felt like quantity was going to be better over the quality that they let go. History tells us that did not work out well for them as Maddox would win another Cy Young in 93 and another in 94 and another in 95 and his four-year ERA over that span versus the league average ERA is as good as anything that's ever been done in the history of baseball, save perhaps Bob Gibson in the late 60s in a different era, in a dead ball decade with a, with a higher mound. So really spectacular what he did, but he was treated really unfairly, but not by me because I understood the story and believed I knew it better than anybody else. But Maddox is the kind of guy, to his credit, and we, we've never talked about this, but I always felt like he knew that and understood that. And when I would go see him in his Atlanta locker room, he would stop everything he was doing and go sit with me for a while and, and whatever I needed if it was a playoff game, uh, where he, whereas he would tell everybody else who came up, um, I'm talking tomorrow at the press conference, he'd give me anything I needed anytime. When I call him now, he answers the phone. And sometimes he's on the golf course and he says, I got to call you back, but he answers the phone. And uh, it, he's from a different generation, so he understands where I was in that whole conversation and appreciates it and respects it. And I think, so I think to answer your question, maybe more concisely, was that it, it, it really, I think, 92 and 93, or th- that 12 months is where it really changed. But uh, it was always a respectful relationship, but I think he really appreciated that I tried to tell a fair story and tried to portray it more accurately than anybody else did. But, I, I'm, I mean, I can remember stories in the Tribune basically saying, what's Greg Maddox really done? What's he really done? You know, what's he, what are you really missing? If you look at Jose Guzman's numbers, they're really getting the same guy. And that was the approach that everyone in Chicago was taking. And uh, it was offensive to me because I thought it was all a bunch of crap. And really, uh, like I said, he, he took a pretty big pounding. So that's probably where the relationship changed a little bit. When did you know you had a talent for writing? I don't. I don't know that I still do. You know. Oh come I, on. I. I don't. I honestly. I. You've paid for children's college with your writing. <laughs> Look, uh, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I do. I. I mean, I appreciate uh, you. You thinking that I. That I might have some talent, but I just do what I do. I. I love what I do. Uh, I love working hard. I love the big events. I love the pressure of the big events. You know, I, I come from a hockey background, so, you know, I always wanted to be on the ice when it mattered, and I always took a lot of pride in having the respect of my coaches so that I, I, I could be on the ice when it mattered, and they knew that I should be on the ice when it mattered. And I think I, I just, I love the moment. You know, I love the, I love the pressure of the moment. I enjoy deadline. I enjoy... Uh, the process of that, but I, I don't know that I ever really thought I had 
uh, any special amount of talent or anything like that. I don't think I ever knew what I really wanted to do. I changed my major 10 times in college. What was it starting out? I don't know, something in business probably. Because that's what you did, right? I mean, I didn't even know where I was going to school till a month before I went to school because I, I was going to go to Indiana, and I really couldn't afford it. And driving back from Indiana, I don't even know why I picked Indiana. I mean, I was 17. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no answers to any questions. It's just the Big Ten seemed like a good idea, but I really couldn't afford it. So on the drive on the way home, which seemed like a long drive home, you know, which, what is it, three and a half hours, something yep. like that? It just seemed like a long way. And I was thinking I could, if I went closer to home, I could still vend on the weekends and make money, which I needed. So I wound up choosing NIU at the last minute, moved into a fraternity house first semester freshman year because the dorms were sold out. And uh, that was an experience as a 17-year-old freshman in a fraternity house. Learned a lot the first weekend, Lawrence. I can imagine. Learned, uh, I I did a lot of firsts that first weekend. (laughs) And... uh, in, in DeKalb. There were a lot of firsts for me. I kind of hadn't uh, experienced a lot of things and uh, checked a lot of boxes that weekend. Okay. So well, that so that was good. No, it is. So it, that, that was a good thing. But um, I changed my major a lot. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I think deep down I always knew this is what I wanted to do. Because uh, I did love to write. I didn't know if I was any good at it. And I, I didn't know if I was going to... No way did I think, you know, after I had finally changed my major to journalism and decided I was going to do this, I had no idea how it was all going to work out. I just uh, have always felt fortunate that it did. And uh, as a baseball beat writer in particular, I thought I was really well suited to doing that because that, that at least when I did it, and the game has changed a lot, the, the baseball beat writing game has changed a lot. These guys don't have near the access that I did. I could go sit in a manager's office for three hours before a game by myself if I wanted to. When I walked in that room every day, there was 25 guys in that room every day. When I when a game was over, every day, every single day, there was Andre Dawson and Greg Maddox and Ryan Sandberg and Rick Sutcliffe and Mark Grace and Sean Dunstan and Paul Ossemacher and Mike Bilecki and Dave Smith or Randy Myers or who every single day they were there after a game in front of their locker. You know what it's like now. You walk into a locker room, there's three guys. And 50 guys go to one guy and then 50 guys go to – and they announce, okay, this guy's available and 50 guys go there. When I did it, you had access to a lot of guys and you had access to a lot of guys alone. And you had an opportunity to work really hard and break stories every day, and I love that part of it. I love that you could work – really hard and do the job really well. What advice would you give to someone who's starting off as a beat reporter now on how they can set themselves apart from what sometimes look like cookie cutter stories that we see in the paper, even in blogs now? Well, like any other business, I think it's a relationship business. You know, people always say, how'd you get so, well, you just asked me about Maddox. It's a, it's an investment of time. In speaking to that player, people say, how'd you get to know Sandberg so well? Well, I talk to him every single day, not just when he hit a home run. Or, you know, how many errors did he make a year? Three? Five in a year? Some years, none. (laughs) Some years, almost literally none. But I talk to him every day, before every game, after every game. And if you do that with 25 guys, 
you're going to have relationship with guys. So I always uh, I, I always talk about the 25th man. The 25th man doesn't play a part in most of your game stories. But some days it's going to be for something bad because he's the last guy in the bullpen who gave up a huge home run. You know, your your middle relief guy, how often are you going to talk to that guy? How often are you going to need that guy? Um, you're one of your backup infielders. How often are you going to need one of them? Usually it's for something bad. Well, if you go to him and you haven't spoken to him all year, including spring training, there's probably not going to be a lot there for you. But if that's a guy who knows you and knows that there's a relationship there and that you're not out to get him but just to get information from him, if you've developed that relationship, then there's a chance for you to get a good story there. And maybe when when the group leaves, and when I did it, there were three guys that traveled every day. You had three beat guys. Daily Herald Trib sometimes, that was it. So you had a locker room to yourself, and sometimes, depending on deadline, you might have been in there by yourself. And you might get a great story out of a guy, out of that 25th guy or 24th guy because you've invested the time to get that relationship. So while the opportunities are not as good as they used to be, the relationship business still exists. So my advice would be you got to put the time in. If you put the time in to know those people and develop sources who are going to tell you stories that otherwise you might not get, give you stuff on background that you otherwise might not get, and that's everybody. That's groundskeepers and trainers and strength guys and coaches, not just managers and executives, scouts, scouts who you who names of guys that you don't even know. But there's 50, 60, 80 guys in an organization who can provide you with information. Those relationships don't happen overnight. That's an investment of time. So Zimmer used to say 95% of life is showing up. That's a big part of it is showing up. I'm talking about early and investing the time. Again, today in any sport, be it the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or MLB, you just don't have those opportunities like I did. It was a different era, a different time. But there's still opportunities to get to know people, and you got to invest that time. If you do that and develop those relationships, you still have a chance. Do you think if you were 22 years old now that you would enjoy covering sports with the way things are? No. Why not? Because I don't. I, you wouldn't have the opportunities – to break the stories that I did back then. Cause you just don't have, there's just not, there's just not the access. I would hate that before a game, you all talk to the manager together. I would hate that before a game, you all go into a locker room where there's maybe one guy and everybody talks to him together. I would hate that after a game, it's the exact same thing. I mean, there's no, there's not a great opportunity to differentiate yourself. You talk about the cookie-cutter way in which the game is covered. To a large extent, it's not the fault of the guys doing it. It's that's what's available. And that would be really frustrating for me because if you want to hustle, if you want to work hard, if you want to bust your ass and try to separate yourself from everybody else, it's very hard to do. You talked about deadline. What's the hardest deadline that you were up against? Maybe your your greatest deadline victory. <laughs> well, I've written a thousand words in fifteen minutes as a columnist. It's uh, it, and and people say, "How do you do that?" Well, because you have to. There's no, there's no not making deadline. 
There's no well, I missed out. There is no missing deadline. You have to make deadline, or else the paper doesn't print on time. It's not a, a sorry I'm late thing. You gotta make. You just have to. It's a deadline. It's a. De- <laughs> <laughs> Can you look that up and define that for me? What is the definition of a deadline? It's not like, uh, sorry, I blew deadline by seven minutes. No, you 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 can't. So I, you know, there's. I think probably what sticks out to me is the World Series in 2016. That Game 7 was just, I mean, that's as big a nightmare as a writer, whether you're a beat guy or a columnist, whatever, as you can possibly imagine. It's the biggest story in the world. Ever. It's the biggest sports story ever. And it looks like it's going one way, then it goes another, then it rains. Now you've got to wait for the story to write itself, and then you have to write the story. As Nuke Lelouch said, and sometimes it rains. Absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. There was no question in my mind the Cubs are going to win that game. After they won game five, I was certain. In fact, I said it on Hit and Run on Sunday morning before game five. I said they need John Lester to go out and win this game one to nothing or two to one. And if he can do that, what they win that? Was that... Two to one? Did yep. they win that game two to one? I said if they can do that, they will win game six and they will win game seven. Drive into the ballpark uh, uh, before game seven, there was no question in my mind that they would win that game. And it's going according to plan till Joe Madden pulls Kyle Hendricks at 63 pitches. That was not necessary. Nevertheless, and I digress again, they blow the lead, which is a nightmare. It rains, which is a nightmare. I'm staring out at the tarp going, this this is not real. This is not happening. So, I mean, the first deadline, all right, so you file, and in this case it's actually easier as a beat guy because it's kind of, uh, you know, you can use a lot of play-by-play and you can get it in for first edition and you're not going to have a score, you're not going to have a final. You knew that because the games start late. You got to be in by what, probably 10 o'clock for the first one. You you know that one, nobody's going to see that one anyway. But the second one, you're getting ready to – this is the the Cubs have won the World Series column. This is probably going to be your most read column. Ever. Ever. And But as a veteran, you also got to know that weird things happen. So you got to have a Cubs win the World Series column pretty much ready to go. You got to have a Cubs lose the World Series column ready to go. What I did not have ready to go – was there's going to be a rain delay after they've blown a lead and are going to screw up Game 7, which is going to be the worst loss in the history of sports. Forget about 1969 or 1984 or 2003 or 2004 or anything else. This is going to be the worst loss ever in the history of sports. Ever. And it's raining. And there's a tarp on the field. I didn't have that one. Didn't have that, that one, one was in your bag. You didn't. Have to, you didn't write that one. You didn't write how important Jason Hayward in the rain delay was going to be. Column that wasn't. That's the that's the three wood that Tiger Woods can hit three hundred and thirteen yards. No, I don't have that club in my bag, and I did not have that column ready to go. So now I got to write that one. Now I got to write that one, and that's I don't know how many versions I wrote that night, and how many. 
different print editions we had that night. I do know that I was really happy with the one that I eventually wrote that served as the the Cubs have won the World Series column. But uh, that, I, I suppose you could argue that's my greatest deadline victory was surviving that night. I don't mean to make it sound like it was hard. It was just really aggravating. That was like, I mean, as uh, you blow this lead, really, you blew this lead. This this cannot be happening. And now, the Cubs lose the World Series column has to be completely rewritten because of the fashion in which they just blew the World Series. If indeed that's happening, because it wasn't just they lost Game Seven. Yeah, it wasn't. This, they went out and lost five to two. It was they had it. Then they lost it. Then it rained. Then they lost it. And it's like an anvil had been dropped on everyone's head. And then the skies opened again. Skies opened again. Were you in Cleveland for no, Game 7? No, I was back here, man in the fort. I don't know if you could see it on TV, and I don't remember the timing exactly. I think in the bottom of that inning when Chris Bryant made the play, I know he slipped. I know the field was wet. I think it had started raining again. But I could tell you that within five minutes of that game being over, it rained as hard as you've ever seen rain come down. I remember walking to the car two hours later. It was still pouring, which means that if that game had been tied, not only were they not resuming that night, I believe it rained the entire next day and that night. It did. So it would have been like 2008 Phillies Rays. Who knows when they would have started that game again? With the game tied in extra innings. So I am uh, forever grateful to the Chicago Cubs for having <laughs> found a way to end that. And also grateful that the, that the story was over. I mean, it's not my business to root for who wins or loses or care because I don't. I know it's hard for some people to believe. I really don't. I just need a result. I need a result and hopefully a good story. I don't care who wins or loses, but I wanted them to win because I wanted that to be over forever. I never wanted again. I mean, can you imagine if they had lost that? Can you imagine what the winter and spring would have been like? I was. I remember sitting there going, what if they lose? Because the story had been great. It had been a great story. Storybook, the whole thing. And and you're sitting there when, when Rajay Davis hits the home run thinking, wow, this is... Uh, off of Chapman, and you're just going, this is... The managing, the Hendricks at 63, bringing in Lester, taking out Lester. Joe Chapman. Madden had been a genius all the way up to the postseason. And then he looked like not a genius. And I, I felt that that was going to be the thing. That the ire that was going to come for the Cubs was going to come in the form of, you paid $5 million a year. For that guy to manage that way in the World Series, you guys blew it. Like, in my mind, I was already doing my next show. And I was sitting there going... Not your next show, your next 200 shows. Yeah, and it's basically just give the phone number out. Because I was going to have to play the role of therapist for Chicago Cubs fans at that point. Do you think that narrative would have been wrong? No. I'm I'm a big proponent of Joe Madden. I think that Joe Madden... I am one of those people that think the managers matter. Okay, they, they do because they do. They they do. I think that his superpower is as a manager is the way that he handles personality. 
that he handles ego, he handles personality, he squires people along, and I think for a regular season, that is exactly what you need. You need someone who is going to be able to handle the clubhouse, and he does it better than most people at, at the major league level. In my world, he's a top-five manager right now that, that's in the game. Where I think he sometimes outthinks himself is strategy. And I know that he's got his card that he looks at. I know that he and Theo and Jed have looked at certain things. And there are times when I go, uh, when we're recording this, this is not too long after Cole Hamels throws a complete game for the Cubs. And I was there doing pre and post that day. And I kept going, let him finish let him the game. Pitch. Because his pitch count wasn't incredibly high. He finished with, what, 114 in the game. And I'm just sitting there going, don't do the Joe thing here where you're like, oh, he's tired. I'm going to go get a guy out of the bullpen. And it and it, it created an electric moment at Wrigley Field. Yeah. An almost no-hitter-type atmosphere in just a complete game. People want to see it. People want to see that. We could have another conversation another time about what you would pay to see in the game today and the, and the disappearing great starting pitchers who we used to go see when we were kids. We knew who was pitching, and it mattered. How many of those guys are left? Scherzer, Verlander, Kershaw. How many are left? There's not a lot that are left. Because baseball's done that. They've decided that they don't matter anymore. They've also not taught them how to be starting pitchers who throw 130 pitches and go nine innings. That's conversation for another I, day. I, but I, I was looking it up as the broadcast was going on. This year, there have only been five pitchers who've thrown more than one complete game. And the highest that any of them have thrown is two. You don't have to... <laughs> you don't have to go back that far. I'm talking five or ten years... To find guys who were routinely throwing 10, 12 complete games a year. I mean, forget about Fergie Jenkins and and Bob Gibson throwing 40 complete games a year and throwing 350 or 400 innings. But how about how about 220 innings? I mean, Maddox used to throw 260, 270 like it was nothing. And now if you but, get a guy 200 innings... You're like, wow, that guy's a horse. You know, that, that guy's a, an ace at the, crazy. at the top of the rotation. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell a guy that he can't get through the order the third time through, then he's not going to. Then he's just going to go max effort from the start. He's going to show hitters every pitch he's got in the first inning, and he's got no chance to get through the third time, get through the order the third time. That's not how they used to manage a game. Talk to Maddox about how you manage a game. He'll show you nothing the first time, maybe even the second time. He might not show you anything today because he's saving a pitch for when he really needs it four months from now or maybe next year. They don't pitch, they don't teach pitchers to do that anymore. But Madden, I, I'm with you on Madden. Look, I think I think there's 20 things a manager has to do and do them well to be great. Joe is really good at about 18. I was going to say 17. So I, I'm right there with you. You know, you I mean you gotta manage you gotta manage the game. You gotta manage a pitching staff. You gotta manage a bullpen. You gotta manage your coaches. You gotta manage your front office. You have to manage up. You have to manage the expectations of the front office. And this is a front office that is hands-on. You gotta manage what Joe calls the geeks in his front office. You gotta manage fan expectations. 
You got to manage the fan base through the media. You got to manage the media. You got to manage ownership. You got to manage personalities. You got to manage the bench. You got to manage the players. And you have to communicate every day with all of these people. Joe is really, really good at a lot of those things. He's not good at managing a postseason game when it comes to starters and bullpen guys. But you know what? There are no perfect managers. No, they're not. I've never known there to be one. There's some guys, you know, who have been really, really good. There's some guys in the game today who are really, really good. But there's no perfect ones. You host a weekly baseball show with Joe Ostrowski. And I say this not because you're sitting in front of me. And and because I I, know you're lying already. Whatever you're going to say. I adore Joe. I think that right now, including my own show, I think that you guys' show is the best show on the radio station. Wow. And I think that it has a lot to do the knowledge stuff, obviously, but the relationship you guys have forged on that show, I think is pretty special. And listeners, I think the listener wants to hear people that like each other talk with each other, if if that makes any sense at all. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense because I think if you listen to whatever radio shows you listen to, whether here in Chicago or around the country or on uh, satellite radio, or if you listen to podcasts, or if you watch TV, MLB Network, for example. I love the morning show, MLB Central. Um, I miss Vaskersian on it because of the chemistry that Vaskersian and DeRosa, and um, forgive me now, I I love her so much, I can't think of her name right now. Um, I know who you're talking about, too. Shame on me, because because she's great. Um, I, I love the chemistry of the show. I love how much they enjoy being on together. I love how much fun they have together, that they can make fun of one another, um, that they enjoy being together. And it comes across clearly on the air. And Vaskersian's gone now, replaced by Robert Flores, but he fits right in because he's so self-effacing. And um, Lauren Shahadi, Lauren Shahadi, sorry. God, she she's great. I mean, she's got a great personality. She knows how to work with those guys. She, you know, she's absolutely willing to make fun of herself and them. But as much as there's great baseball information, and and DeRosa is phenomenal with it. Not not just that he's not afraid to say what he thinks. He's great when it comes to analyzing teams and lineups and pitchers, and especially hitting. But they just have a good time together. And you feel that. And it's an easy watch. And that does matter. You listen to some shows, you you can tell the guys can't stand each other. Who wants to listen to that? It's really uncomfortable. Uh, Who wants to be subjective? Lawrence, life is hard for most people. Every day is hard. Every day, it's hard to get through a day. Whether it's because of work or or difficult family situations or money or whatever it is, life is hard. I mean, I've, that's all I've ever known is that life is hard. I haven't seen it any other way. It's hard to get through a day. And if, and if people are listening to something, they just, my belief, and what do I know, right? My belief, and I, I thought Steve Dahl did the best radio that's ever been done. And what was it? It was two guys sitting in a studio, goofing around, having some fun. When it was time to be serious, they were serious, but it wasn't very often. They're just messing around. But if you were in the car stuck in traffic, it helped you get from one place to another. 
And that's what I always thought a show should be, is guys just having a good time. Now, we do a baseball show, so it can get, it can get fairly intense from a baseball standpoint at times, but, but rarely do we get really serious about it. I, ho- I, I, don't, like, like I don't go into a show thinking, this is what we should do today. This is what I hope it is. I hope it's entertaining. I hope it's fun. I hope people enjoy it. I hope they're informed. Uh, or uh, at least find something in it that maybe they didn't know before. Maybe I don't know. I I don't I don't plan. I don't have a plan for it. I don't I don't take it myself seriously enough or the show seriously enough to think it 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 serves some purpose. Yeah, but there's a fine line too. There's a fine line between I don't care about the show. You know, versus that's not what I mean. It's I know, not and I know, I, and, not, and I'm saying that you and Joe are able to walk that line. Where I, I am a P1 listener to Hit and Run. <laughs> I, I make sure that I have if I'm in the gym nine o'clock. I set an alarm on Sunday morning nine o'clock, <laughs> so I know to switch over because I know the first segment of that show <laughs> is going to be insanity. I know it's going to be you railing against Brian Kenny. Joe yelling at Eli, Eli playing drops of Mad Dog. Like, I know that it's just going to be crazy, but I also know that you guys watch the game. I know that you have an opinion on what happened in whatever happened with the Cubs or the White Sox or around Major League Baseball. And as someone who loves baseball, I truly appreciate it. So I look forward to listening to it. I listen to if I miss the show because I'm doing something, like I go back and I'll listen to the podcast of it. And I just... I just love it, and, and you have had a bunch of partners on the show, and I think that every partner you've had has brought something to it, but I also think that you and Joe have stumbled onto something, and, and, I, and I like it. I like that there's enough information that if you're a baseball wonk, you get what you need, but there's so much fun that you don't have to be a baseball wonk to enjoy the show. Well, I I wouldn't want to work with somebody who took himself too seriously cuz I, I can't. I mean, I I for the life of me, I mean, I look everybody's different. And uh I I sense some of this from you cuz we know each other off the air. I just can't take myself that seriously. Like I don't think any I, I I'm amazed anybody cares what I think about anything. Like it always kind of makes me laugh. I because I get angry email every day, every single day. Because I write a column four days a week. I get angry email every day, tweets, Facebook posts, whatever it is. The text line on the radio station, callers, always amazes me. Because I don't I don't know why anybody would care what I think about anything. And in my house, nobody does. By the way. <laughs> I'm amazed, but like I can't. Like I just think I. I just think I. I happen to have the opportunity to write a column and talk on the radio, and do TV, whatever. But I. I don't know why anybody cares what I think about anything, really. So I just don't. I just don't think about that stuff. I don't take myself that seriously, and I wouldn't want to work with somebody who did because it's not fun. Get over yourself. We're just the people who are listening are just they're in the car for whatever time they're in the car or on a Sunday morning they're having their coffee or they're at the gym or they're in the garage working or on the back patio staying in the deck, whatever it is, 
or they're walking the dog or, or, or going for a run. They're just looking for something to listen to. They don't need to be beat over the head every single day with whatever you think it is you should be outraged about. Is there not enough outrage in the world? Is there not enough every day to really aggravate you if you want to be? You can subject you can subject yourself to as much of that as you want. But I I got to think there's 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 got to be times of the day where people just want to rest a little bit. Just give me a break. Give me a little bit of a break. I I know that's me. Like I don't listen to anything that that aggravates me. I don't watch anything that aggravates me. I don't subject myself to it on social media. It's just too hard. The days are too long. There's enough of that. So I hope it's fun. I hope people are entertained. Uh, I just, uh, I, I just, you know, I love baseball. I really do. It's my first love. I mean, hockey was was took up the most part of my life. And it's funny and because it, before, not not that it was that hit and run kind of defined you, but if we go back to a time before hit and run. If I say the name Barry Rosner, people go Blackhawks. Hmm. You know, and and now I think it's. But I mean, I covered baseball for a of, long of time. Of course, so you did. I was associated with the Cubs for a long time. For but, some, but you Brian know. Hanley had the same thing. Brian had stopped covering the Blackhawks. You know, in the mid '90s or whatever it was. Yeah, he, and there, there were still people calling the score, asking him what he thought about the Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, I. Spent a good poor. I've played the game for forty years, and I mean, and I, I don't love hockey any less than I do baseball. But baseball was my first love, isn't it? Everybody's first love. It's really? mine. Isn't that what you? I mean, there's a couple hockey games a week. There's only one football game a week. There's a few basketball games, but baseball's every single day. Isn't that the game you watched with your brother? Or your sister, or your mom, or your dad. That's what's on every day. That that's what's on every day for six months a year. That's what I, I mean. I I remember the first game I went to. I don't know what happened that day, but I remember the first time seeing that field. It's vivid. And I I think for a lot of people, there's just this innate love of the game, and they want to embrace it, and they want to be swallowed up by it. And if for three hours on a Sunday we we could just help people enjoy the game, then that's great. Um, But whatever they come there for, I'm happy about that. And for 10 years I've been doing this, and each year I think it gets better. Each year I think it it becomes more fun as you become more comfortable with how you want to do it. But again, I, I won't sit here and pretend I put a lot of thought into the presentation of it. I watch every game. I watch every White Sox game. Yeah. As as insane as that sounds. But there's a lot really there's really actually a lot there if you're watching the games. I have the MLB package. I watch a lot of games late at night. I mean, you see things, you hear things, you discover things. So I I I hope we bring a lot to the show, but I won't pretend that this is a this is a you know a meeting of the Mensa Club or something like that. It's just it's two idiots sitting in a room, hopefully <laughs> hopefully having some laughs and and discussing the the week of baseball that just passed. We've had a lot of fun here on the pod. I, my wife actually asked me. She was like, "I want you to ask Barry something particular," and I was like, "Okay." She wanted to ask me what it's like for you 
to raise girls in 2018? Well, I didn't really raise them in 2018. I don't know. All right, my girls were born in 95 and 97, late, late in both years. And I, I think, I think with each, I break it up into like five-year segments. I think with every five-year segment that passes, it becomes more and more difficult. Uh, I don't have any. Uh, I have great kids. I have great girls. They're both. Uh, one will graduate in the spring. The other's in grad school. Both straight A students, and by straight A students, I mean they've never had a B in college. If you can imagine that. Now, what did I have to do with that? Nothing. Nothing. They're just they're they're just great. Pe- they're good people, which matters to me a lot. They're driven to succeed, which matters to me a lot. But more than anything, they ju- they just work hard. I don't know where that comes from. We never pushed them. I, the only thing that I know about it is we love them, and they know that they're loved, and they're secure in who they are because we spent a lot of time with them when they were kids, when they were really little. I mean, really their whole lives, we spent a lot of time with them. We didn't have babysitters. We didn't. And I'm not suggesting this is the way it should be done. I'm just telling you what we did. We didn't have babysitters. We didn't go out. We came home after work. Uh, my wife, who was a teacher, didn't work for for eight or nine years. You know, we didn't. They they weren't in daycare. Uh, and that's, you know, we paid a heavy price for that financially and and still are. But a lot of people can't do that. We just decided that's what we were going to do. And, and, you know, maybe we shouldn't have, but that's what we decided to do. And I just think because we were with them so much, they're, they're just, they're very secure in who they are. And I, I think, I think that matters in a world where it's not just hard to be a girl or to be a young person or to be going out into the world or to be going to college or to high school or to elementary school, but just to live in this world. It's a hard world to live in. No matter, you know, male or female, black or white, Hispanic, whatever. It's a hard world to live in. And uh, getting up in the morning and getting out of the house is really hard for some people. And so um, it, it was it hard to raise girls? Not particularly. I'm like every other guy. I wanted a boy. But once I had a girl... Uh, and, you know, they're two years apart. I wanted another girl because I wanted my daughter to have a best friend. And they're best friends, and I couldn't imagine my life any other way. It's, uh, you know, every I, I think um, I, I think to suggest that it's harder to raise girls than boys is probably unfair because I think boys at a young age are really hard. Because we're stupid. Boys are stupid. I mean, I'm still, like, like I'm still stupid. Like, I'll go for, you know, like, I'll go for a run, and I'll come home, and I'll smell really bad, and I'll walk around the house for an hour, and I'll eat, like, three donuts, and then I'll sit down and start watching a ball game, and they'll all three of them be looking at me like, what's wrong with you? You smell terrible. You just worked out. Now you're eating donuts and you're sitting down on a leather couch as a stinking pig 
what what who does that? Like what's it? But we're stupid because we're oblivious and we just kind of exist. And little boys are really bad because they just you know they don't see any they don't see the wall in front of them, which is why they run headfirst into it at twenty miles an hour. So the first like first I I think the way you break it down is the first six or seven years. It's amazing that the male species even survives like without running in front of trucks and stuff like that. Some of us did and, and survived anyway. I chased but, a car across the street. I mean, a ball across the street. Yeah, in traffic. I chased a ball across the street. And, and when I was five years old, and had I not slid on an oil patch and gone underneath another car, I'd be dead because I was stupid. Right. Right. Well, I mean, boys, you could tell boys as many times as you want to not go play in traffic, but boys are just going to go play in traffic because we're boys. Uh, I got hit by a car when I was a kid on a bike. What? Yeah. Um, flew like 20 feet. Uh, you know, hit my back tire, flew like 20 feet. Basically not a scratch. Basically, the bike was totaled. Had to walk my bike home about, <laughs> I think I was like seven or eight. Had to walk my bike home and explain that. Basically not a scratch. I still wrecked my bike today. I love riding my bike in the summer. Had a, a really bad accident about three months ago um, where uh, uh, you could argue whether I hit the back of the car or the back of the car hit me as it was pulling out of a driveway and I didn't see it. And I was going full speed, flew over the handlebars, wrecked my elbow for, for God knows. Uh, oh, I see the scar. God knows how many. Yeah, my, I didn't uh, realize you had one. My, my elbow is like, it's like there's like gravel in here now. I'm. Who knows how many times I, I still do that. You know why? Because I'm a boy and I'm stupid. Um, the first seven, eight years for boys, it's amazing they survive. But then it kind of turns the other way and boys can kind of go out into the world and it's much easier than it is for a girl to go to elementary. I mean, it used to be it's hard to go to high school. Now it's elementary school and middle school. Mm-hmm. Pretty hard. It's pretty hard. And the girls talk about it now and it was much harder for them than they let on at the time. And the the key is you just, you gotta, gotta talk a lot. You just have a lot of conversations. I never preached at my kids, but I did, we did have a lot of conversations about things. We still do about things, about things that I worry about. And I, I don't preach, but we talk a lot. And that communication is huge. So. I love that about you. I, I truly love that about you. When, when we talk off mic, we spend a lot of time talking about your daughters. And I love the way that you approach talking about it because there is this you I can tell that you have this kind of manic inherent fear of them being out in the world. But you also understand that you have to let them be out in the world. Yeah, there's a fine line there. I mean, look, you can't control it anyway. They're going to go out in the world. So as they're beginning to do that, how much do you try to control that? Well, I really didn't. I just talked a lot about the things that are out there and the things that scare me without scaring them, but trying to inform them. Because I used to be a guy, so I know the things that are out there. <laughs> um, I don't really, you know, after living in a house with three women for the last 20, 25 years, you know, the 
doesn't feel so much that way anymore. But I used to be a guy, so I know how guys think, and I know the things that are out there, and there's a lot of danger in this world. And so I, I tried not to preach so much as I'd see something on the news, and we would then have a conversation about this thing that happened and why, and is, you know, is there any way that this poor individual, you know, could have avoided it? And, you know, probably not. And there's just, you know, there's a thousand things every day if you want to walk around afraid and you can't. You got to live. You have to get out there and live. But maybe, maybe there's, you know, if you talk about enough things, maybe you can get lucky. Maybe some things don't happen. But I still, I don't live in fear. But there's a lot of times during the day I, I think about where they are and what they might be doing, and I'll, we have we have uh, electronic communication today that makes it easy to just say how you doing and get an answer back right away, and uh, so you know you can feel a little more secure in the knowledge that they're okay. But uh, I, I don't have any secrets. I don't have any secrets. I it's um, and I won't. To answer your wife's question, I think it's probably harder to have little girls today than it was 20 years ago when my kids were born. I think probably it gets harder every year, but uh, I don't know any other purpose that we're here, to tell you the truth. That's from my perspective. I don't know what other reason I would be here if it weren't for my kids. I mean, why? why I, it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because none of the rest of it really matters. It's just kind of what we do. It's just kind of the exercise, this exercise of life. I'm not sure what the point of it is. I've gotten to this point without understanding what's the reason for all of this. Um, I do think a great lob wedge from 56 yards to two feet is really satisfying. I don't know if that's it. I was going to ask how your golf game was. So, uh, Well... This summer, some really, really good. The best ever. But you can follow that up with really, really bad because that's golf. That's golf. We didn't even get a chance to talk about Tiger Woods today. No. I'm setting up for a part two. Okay. All right. So I, I would like for you to come back for a part two at some point. Would love it. Would love it. I always I love being with you on the air, off the air. I wish someday we could work together on the air because you're you're a joy to be around. Your your attitude toward this business is appropriate, which is uh, have have some fun. Have some fun. It ain't life or death. No. There's plenty of that out there. This ain't life or death. You can find it very easily. It sometimes finds you. So <laughs> whether, you, whether you like it or not. Part two, I'm in. You let me know. So how great is that? I love the Roz. I hope that you take the time to look at the picture that um, I, I posted for today's episode just because it's, as, as a, a, a commenter on my Instagram once said, so rosinery, it hurts. As we're sitting in here, imagine that when I ask Barry a question, he is chomping on a cigar, just dying to get out of the room so he can go and smoke the cigar. It's great. He is uh, one of my favorite people. I always love when I get the opportunity to kind of interact with him when I'm leaving a show or starting a show and vice versa because we get to talk about stuff and he'll stick around sometimes in the studio. Like, let's say he's filling in on the afternoon show. He'll 
stick around during this the the break before my show starts and just ask me how I'm doing. Talk to me about baseball or whatever. And he's one of the great storytellers that works here at the score. And we've missed out on that. I mean, Terry retiring when Doug passed away. Doug is probably the greatest storyteller I've ever met. But Barry is right up there with the way that he tells a story. And I'm glad that you got the opportunity to hear some of his ridiculousness. And some really good advice, too, I thought. Some perspective for journalists that are starting out and what it's like to be up on deadline. And the concept of relationships It's a really big deal. So I'm glad that you got a chance to hear that. Each week, we go through emails. People email. You can email the show, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com, if you would like your question to be asked on the podcast. And we have a bunch from people that have some thoughts on prior episodes of the podcast or have ideas for guests. So. This one is from Andrea, who says, Lawrence, thank you so much for sharing your podcast with the world. Oh, that's super nice. I love the episode with Sarah Spain. It truly means a lot that you give this wonderful space to women and offer the opportunity for different viewpoints, not just the traditional man's world radio garbage. I've always respected you and have loved listening to you. Thank you, Andrea. Well, that's super nice of you to say, Andrea. I appreciate it. I do want to try and give the world access to incredible people whose voices that they might not ordinarily hear. Now, Sarah's a star. I mean, that's different. But I suspect, at least in my mind, I am planning out different scenarios on how the podcast can do some of that, whether it's allowing people to guest for a particular week or guests that you haven't necessarily heard from in what we would call traditional media I also plan at some point to talk with young journalists that are kind of starting their journey. And I I think that there might be some interest there. But, yeah, Sarah is cool as a fan. We had a great time. And and as I said on the pod last week, we talked for another 10, 15 minutes after I stopped recording. And it was just as good. And I suspected that the episode would be strong, and she did not disappoint whatsoever. This one is from Donna. Donna says, hi, Lawrence. I have really been enjoying the podcast. Love the local celebs and hearing about how they got where they are, likes and dislikes, and just seeing more of their personality besides what is on the screen or airwaves. Ben Bradley was just amazing. He really struck me when he talked about doing what he wants to do and doing meaningful meaningful stories. I'm hoping to hear Peanut Tillman one day on the podcast. You two are always fun together and would love to hear how post-football life is. Peggy Kaczynski is someone I love to hear from, too. She's one of the first female sports people I remember watching on TV. Keep up the great work, Donna. Yeah, I would love to get Charles in here without a filter. Not that he really has one when I have him on the score, but he does understand that I don't want to get fired. So for the most part, he does his part in not getting me fired. Peggy is on the list of people that I want to sit down with. Uh, She's someone, I've talked about it before on previous pods, but she's someone who I consider a mentor and understands how to work and move in this game for 30 years and just 
one of the best people that I've encountered in this business. Very generous with critique and with time and with help. So, yes, her stories of kind of being, I call her a trailblazer. She bristles at that, but it's true. What she did on radio here in Chicago, what she did in television, what it was like for her to be in locker rooms back in the in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women in locker rooms. I think there are a lot of fun stories there. So, yes, she is definitely on the list. I appreciate it. This from Jose. Hello, Lawrence. I've really enjoyed the podcast and was a longtime score listener until the recent changes in the lineup. Well, you should come back. I still listen to your show, and the recent shakeup at the score led me to discover podcasts. Okay, well, that's good. I was wondering if you consider having Steve Stone on the podcast. I like to hear his story and the transition from player to the best baseball guy on television. Locally, I think it'd be great to touch on the differences of being a part of the Cubs and the White Sox telecast. That's from Jose. Steve Stone is on the list, and he and Jason have joked about my podcast on White Sox broadcast. So Steve is 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 good people. And when I would I used to have a place down in Arizona, I've talked about it a little bit. When I would go down there, Steve would always take me to dinner. If I told him in enough time that I was going to be in town, he would take me to Don and Charlie's. And going into Don and Charlie's with Steve Stone is unbelievable. You talk about the guy that knows everybody. He is that dude. So, yeah. And he's he's another one who's a great storyteller. So, I I, I think it would be a very cool thing to, to get him to be a part of it. I really do. I think it could be a lot of fun. Thanks for your emails. It's appreciated. Thanks for listening to the show. We appreciate that. We like doing the podcast, and and before I record it with Barry, we got our first dollar as a podcast, and that was very cool. So thanks to Melly Cafe for that, our first sponsor on the show, and we finally got like our first like dollar. I'm very excited about it. It's they're small dollar amounts, but anyone who's ever started out in a venture knows if you get even a small amount of money for a passion project, you're ahead of the game. So I thank you for listening. If you're on iTunes and you're listening to iTunes, give us five stars. Give us a great rating. It helps. Strangely enough, it helps with the metrics. So whatever you can do, that would be fantastic. If you want to email the podcast, houseofellpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Be back next week.